It's nine in the morning on the 14th of February 1945. Another wartime Valentine's Day in the quiet village of Lower Quinton in Warwickshire. Though any romantic notions are far from the mind of 75-year-old widower Charles Walton, it's just another normal workday for the casual labourer off to slash hedges over at the Furs farm. Charles shrugs his coat onto his shoulders as he leaves the small cottage he shares with his niece, Edith. He carries his trusty pitchfork and a razor-sharp slash hook for cutting the hedges. His other hand grips a walking stick to steady his gait. Frost lays thick on the grass, crunching under his heavy boots. The rheumatism is playing merry hell with his joints this morning, the cold creeping deep into his bones. His walking stick clunks along the path, taking the strain for his old knee. The faint sliver of a crescent moon hangs in a slab grey sky. His whole life has been spent tending land, and like many in these parts, he knows how to recognise Mother Nature's portents and signs. That waxing crescent moon will be feeding energy into the land, enriching the frozen earth, ready for the spring growth to begin. Charles crosses the road and makes his way through the churchyard. It's quiet and peaceful in the morning cold. A murder of crows tracks his passing with suspicious, beady eyes before returning to their scavenging. The morning's gentle, southwesterly breeze whispers through the ancient yew trees that line the churchyard. Nature whispering her secrets to any who will listen. It's a sound that Charles has heard all his long life. He's one of the oldest residents of Lower Quinton, a quiet man who likes to keep himself to himself. That's not to say he's unfriendly. He knows everyone in the village and will always share a greeting, just as he does now, passing one of the locals. He makes his way slowly across the narrow country path and up towards Hill Ground, one of the higher fields of Furs Farm. He's been working for the farm's owner, Alfred Potter, for several months now, mainly cutting hedges. Hill ground is the last stretch he has to work on. At his age, he shouldn't still have to graft like this, but needs must. Besides, the devil makes work for idle hands. Small birds flit along the hedgerow alongside him, keeping pace with his journey, keen to see if he has any crumbs of cake for them. Not yet, but he'll be happy to share his lunch with his feathered friends. Arriving at the site he'll be working on today, he lays down his walking stick and stretches his shoulders, preparing himself for a morning of hard labour. By one o'clock, he's had his customary lunch break and is enjoying the pale, wintry sun on his back. He's been working hard all morning and he's determined to get the job finished before he goes home today. His joints warmed and loosened by his efforts, he now has only about four feet of hedgerow to cut through. He stops his slashing momentarily, cocking his head to one side as a chill washes over him. His blood runs cold. It's not the winter air, but a sense of foreboding coursing through his veins. A crunch on the path behind startles him, but before he can turn around, he feels a sharp, heavy jolt on the back of his head. As 
he falls to the ground. The slash hook is pulled from his hand. He cries out, but he is soon silenced as the sharp blade slices across his throat. Charles Walton is dead. His brutal murder will see one of Scotland Yard's finest detectives brought in to help when local police quickly realize they're out of their depth. Detective Superintendent Robert Fabian, the most famous police officer of his day, is the man sent to face the strangely secretive villages of Lower Quinton. In a case filled with intrigue, rumor, and whispers of witchcraft, finding Charles Walton's killer will challenge Fabian of the Yard like no other murder investigation before. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. At around 6 p.m. on Valentine's evening, Edith Walton arrives back from work expecting her uncle to be home already. She is immediately troubled to find the cottage empty and in darkness. On these short winter days, Charles is usually home by four. He's a reclusive man and a creature of habit, so she knows he won't have stopped off at the pub or gone to visit anyone. He shouldn't be out in the cold this late with his rheumatism. What if he's had a fall and he's lying injured somewhere? Worried, she runs next door to ask her neighbour, Harry Beasley, if he's seen her uncle at all. He hasn't, but he accompanies her up to the Furs farm to see if Charles is still there. They quickly find the farm's owner, Alfred Potter, and Edith explains her fears. The three of them head out to the fields, carrying torches in search of Charles. Potter knows exactly where the old man had been working. 
He'd even seen him hard at it as he'd passed on the lane overlooking the field earlier that day. It doesn't take them long to find Edith's uncle, but the sight that greets them is truly shocking. Charles's throat has been cut wide open by his own hook, which is still embedded in his neck. The blood from his wounds has soaked into the rough earth below his body. He has also been pinned to the ground with his pitchfork. Most horrifying of all is that he has the sign of the cross carved deeply into his chest. Beside herself with grief and panic, Edith's screams ring out across the hillside, scaring crows into the air, cawing angrily. Beasley tries to calm her while stopping her from getting too close to her uncle's body. Another neighbour appears at the hedgerow, wondering what all the commotion is about. He is quickly dispatched to call the police, and Potter stands guard over Charles's body until they get there. The first policeman to arrive is a local constable who appears just after 7pm. Seeing the brutal nature of the scene, he immediately calls for Warwickshire CID. Murder definitely requires detectives rather than constables. Alongside local CID comes Professor James M. Webster of the West Midlands Forensic Lab. While the police take statements from Alfred Potter, Harry Beasley and the traumatised Edith Walton, Professor Webster prepares to work on the crime scene. Thousands of miles away, British bombers rain terror down on the German town of Dresden for a second day. It might as well be a world away, in another time altogether. Here, as the night settles across the Warwickshire countryside, all is quiet and still. An owl hoots and gets a distant reply from her mate. Such violence seems so out of place here. Webster gathers his thoughts. It seems like the murderer made horrific use of what weapons were readily available to him. His initial impression is that Charles was hit over the back of the head, probably with his own walking stick, which the professor finds just metres from the body. His throat was then slit with his hedgehook, and he was subsequently pinned to the ground with his own pitchfork. Such was the ferocity of the attack that it now requires two constables working together to pull the tool from the ground. The crucifix carved into his chest and the way he's been pinned down suggests the body may have been deliberately posed as part of some kind of ritual killing or made to look as such. This is further supported when Webster overhears the local officers muttering something about witchcraft. The young constable who'd watched over the body seems particularly shaken, flinching at every shadow moving in the gloom. He repeatedly crosses himself, as though trying to invoke some kind of protection from the forces at work here. As a scientist, Webster is not given to superstitions, preferring to trust in the evidence he gathers for himself. Nonetheless, a ritualistic element cannot be dismissed. Here, in the depths of rural England, folklore and pagan tradition still hold some sway. If witchcraft or ritual are connected to the crime, the evidence will show that too. Under flickering lamplight, work on the disturbing crime scene goes on late into the night. 
It's 1.30 the following morning before the body is finally removed for post-mortem. Meanwhile, at the local police station, detectives take a formal statement from farmer Alfred Potter. They also request that he and the others who found the body surrender their clothes and shoes for examination. In his statement, Potter says that he has been running First Farm for about five years and has known Charles Walton for all that time. With most of the able-bodied young men off fighting the war, he tells police he has employed Charles casually for the last nine months or so. Despite his age, he says, the old man was a reliable worker who would come over every weekday when the weather permitted. Recounting his movements, Potter claims that on the day of the murder, he was in the College Arms pub with another farmer until noon. From the pub, he'd gone straight across a small field adjoining hill ground and saw Charles working on the hedges on the far side. He tells them that he was pleased to see that Charles only had about six to ten yards of hedge left to cut, meaning the job would likely be finished that afternoon. When he found the body later that day, only four of those yards had been cut, which would have taken the old man about half an hour. This would suggest that Charles was attacked between 12.30 and 1 p.m. Potter tells detectives that Charles was a creature of habit and would always have his lunch at around 11 a.m. and would then work continuously until about four in the afternoon before heading home. He describes Charles as an inoffensive type of man, but one who would speak his mind if necessary. The interview yields little in the way of either means or motive for such a brutal murder. In fact, from their conversation with Potter, there is no hint that Charles had fallen out with anyone in the village at all. The statement from Charles's niece, Edith, confirms the same. Detectives are at a loss as to who had any real motive to kill him at all, let alone so violently or in such a bizarre manner. Obvious suspects are thin on the ground too. Apart from the local townsfolk, there aren't many people would even have reason to be out wandering in the fields. And then there is the ritual element, the cross carved into his chest. It's also unusual, especially for rural Warwickshire. When things are this far out of the ordinary, it's not surprising that suspicion quickly falls on any outsiders in the area. With the Second World War in its last throes, Britain has become home to a number of prisoners of war. As such, a group of Italian soldiers have been housed in the nearby village of Longmaston. The local police begin to wonder whether perhaps one of those Italian prisoners of war is to blame. But how on earth do they even start questioning the men? Not a single officer speaks a word of Italian. Barely a day into the investigation, and local CID are already feeling out of their depth. Baffled, they make the quick decision to call in the big guns from Scotland Yard. There is also a request that the detectives from the Yard bring along an Italian interpreter too. The Yard duly sends the biggest gun of all, Detective Superintendent Robert Fabian. Known as Fabian of the Yard, his reputation precedes him wherever he goes. Fabian is small and wiry, a carefully dressed man with sharp features and piercing eyes that miss absolutely nothing. He is always good-natured and polite, 
but his instincts are ruthless and his insights lethal. If anyone is going to get to the bottom of Charles Walton's murder, it's going to be Robert Fabian. Accompanying him in the investigation is his partner, D.S. Webb. They are also joined by a man from Special Branch who is a fluent Italian speaker and will conduct any interviews with the prisoners of war. On the 16th of February, with his small team assembled in Lower Quinton, Fabian gets to work on what will turn out to be the most challenging and frustrating case of his career. His first task is to find out a little more about the victim. Charles Walton was born in 1870 and had lived in the village of Lower Quinton all of his life. An agricultural worker, he had an excellent understanding of nature and the local area. He had married a local girl, and together they had taken in Charles's niece, Edith, when she was three years old. Edith's mother, Charles's sister, had died when Edith was three, leaving the child with an absent father. It had made sense for Charles and his wife to offer her a home. Charles's wife then died in 1927, leaving him alone to care for young Edith, who was just 15 at the time. She never left her uncle's home, and he paid her an allowance for housekeeping as well as covering their rent and food bills. Though Charles wasn't a particularly sociable man, so far police have struggled to find anyone who disliked him. His most commonly mentioned trait is that he knew everything about nature and country folklore. Some go further, saying he could tame wild dogs with just his voice and would often be seen with birds feeding from his hands. Some go further still, repeating rumours that his gifts were a sign of the supernatural, perhaps witchcraft. Apparently no one can say where these rumours come from. It seems nobody wants to commit to such wild accusations. So who would want to kill a harmless, nature-loving, elderly farm worker in such a violent way? Detectives Fabian and Webb, both hardened Londoners who have seen more than their fair share of grisly deaths, believe that if no other motive can be found among the locals, this must be the work of some random maniac. But that makes the job of finding the killer so much harder. A local Warwickshire detective is the first to offer a theory. He has been doing some digging of his own. He hands Fabian a book which he thinks may shed light on events. The book in question is called Folklore, Old Customs and Superstitions in Shakespeare Land, written by a local vicar in 1929. He highlights a passage about a young woman called Anne Turner who was killed with a pitchfork in 1875. The young detective goes on to reveal that Anne Turner's killer claimed to have acted for the good of the whole community. His defense was that Anne was a witch who had cursed the cattle and land of local farmers. Perhaps most importantly for the current investigation, Anne's killer pinned her to the ground with a pitchfork before slashing her throat in the form of a cross using a bill hook. Apparently, this is an ancient and traditional way to kill a witch known as sticking. The dates from Anglo-Saxon times. This so-called sticking is allegedly the only way to stop a dead witch from rising again. 
Fabian gives the detective a dubious look. There can be no doubt that the two cases have striking similarities, but 1945 is a long way from 1875, and times have changed. Or have they? In a remote, rural location like this, with a strong, druidic history, perhaps there is something dark and unholy at play. Or perhaps this is exactly what the killer wants people to think. He tries to remain open-minded. Fabian knows only too well the kind of evil that men can harbour, yet he can't help feeling disturbed by this new, more occult angle on the case. Nothing can ever be ruled out when it comes to murder. So, with little else to go on, Fabian finds himself on the hunt for a powerful, violent, and deeply superstitious killer. As a seasoned Londoner, he's all too familiar with brutal crimes, but this folklore business is new to him. He needs to learn more. Surprisingly, the villagers become very tight-lipped under questioning. Having made the suggestion of a link to witchcraft in the first place, now no one will talk to him about it. Fabian doesn't suffer fools gladly. He soon dismisses talk of the occult as rural mumbo-jumbo, for now. Whatever the motive, someone still committed the act, and he intends to find that person in his own inimitable style. In a world of deep-fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history, because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Meanwhile, over in the post-mortem, Professor Webster has made some discoveries of his own. Charles Walton was indeed hit over the back of the head with his own walking stick a blow which is likely to have knocked him to the ground. Webster finds some defensive wounds too, a cut on Charles's left hand and some bruising on the back of his right hand and forearm. He wouldn't have been able to put up much of a struggle from the ground, but the old man certainly went down fighting. The killer then used Charles's own slash hook to cut his throat, severing the trachea and carotid artery. It is highly likely that Charles soon lost consciousness before being impaled with his pitchfork. The way his blood had soaked into the ground around him suggests that his body hadn't moved after the initial attack. 
Webster's examination tells him that Charles was killed sometime around one o'clock in the afternoon and that he'd eaten a small meal a couple of hours prior to his death. His shirt had been unbuttoned and a cross had been carved on his chest. Strangely, the fly on his trousers had also been opened. Next, Webster turns his attention to the tools found with the body. He begins his search for physical evidence that may point to the killer. Forensic science has come a long way in recent years, and Webster has already assisted the Yard in convicting a number of killers with irrefutable evidence. Hopefully, this case will be no different. He confirms that the walking stick used to hit Charles has traces of hair and blood on it, and he dusts the rest for fingerprints. Everything that was recovered from the scene will undergo the same meticulous inspection. Webster is sure the devil will be found in the details. It is now the 17th of February, day two of Superintendent Fabian's investigation. Over in Lower Quinton, he sets up an incident room to collate and examine any evidence they uncover. He also has the bright idea to commandeer an aeroplane from nearby RAF Leamington Spa to fly over the site of the murder and take a number of aerial photographs. Perhaps a different perspective on the scene will give him a breakthrough. Despite the bloodstains on the ground being clearly visible, even from altitude, the flyover yields no further clues. The next step is to conduct a thorough ground search. For this, Fabian enlists the help of local officers alongside soldiers of the Royal Engineers. Equipped with metal detectors, the team scour the surrounding fields and countryside. Charles had purportedly been wearing a watch when he left the house, which was not on his body when he was found. Finding the watch may lead them to his killer. Again, the search comes to nothing. No watch is found and no further clues present themselves. This savage and shocking case is proving surprisingly difficult to unpick. Realizing that he's going to have to do this the hard way, he makes a plan to methodically rule out every villager as a potential killer. Fabian mounts a map of the area on the wall in his incident room. He plans to mark the locations of anyone who may have been involved and then assign officers to track their movements. All he has to do now is find some suspects. Meanwhile, DS Saunders from Special Branch is over at the Prisoner of War camp in Long Marston, conducting interviews with the Italian POWs. Apparently, the prisoners are usually allowed to roam the area quite freely. On the day in question, some had gone into nearby Stratford to watch a play, while others had gone to the movies. Saunders leaves the camp confident that none of these men had either the means or motive to kill Charles Walton in the way he'd been discovered. However, a possible breakthrough comes when someone from the village reports seeing one of the Italians hiding in a ditch near Meon Hill, close to the murder site, with blood on his hands. It's back to the Longmaston camp for D.S. Saunders. He arrests the man and sets about grilling him. It turns out the Italian is indeed a killer. Unfortunately, not the kind thereafter. The prisoner has simply been poaching rabbits to supplement his camp rations. Again, 
Saunders concludes that the man had nothing to do with it. The Italian is released, and the investigation goes back to the drawing board. What must Fabian and his team do to get the breakthrough they crave? Fabian now turns his attention back to the last person to have seen Charles alive, farmer Alfred Potter. The constable who was first on the scene reported Potter as acting nervously and shivering uncontrollably. Potter had claimed he was cold, having stood out waiting for the police to come. The PC had his doubts, however, seeing his jittering as a possible sign of guilt. Potter's initial interview with the local police seemed to give him a good alibi for most of the day, although his whereabouts during the crucial window between 12.30 and 1pm are slightly less clear. Potter claimed to have had no grievance with his elderly employee, and this is backed up by other workers and by Edith too. But Fabian knows that much can be determined by interviewing a suspect in person and decides to speak to the man himself. On the 17th of February, Potter is called in for a second interview. This time, it's the Scotland Yard detectives he's facing. He largely sticks to the same story. He had been in the pub and left at noon, saw Charles working in the field, but didn't go to speak to him as he had a heifer trapped in a ditch that he needed to attend to. One discrepancy stands out, though. Potter claims that Charles was wearing shirt sleeves when he saw him. But when the body was found, Charles had been in a sleeveless vest with no sign of a shirt nearby. Is Potter mistaken? Or is it possible that the man Potter actually saw was the killer? Having assumed it was Charles, Potter paid little further attention to the man so can give no further description. He confirms how long Charles had worked for him, how much he got paid, what he did, and what he was like as a character. Nothing in his responses suggests that he had any motive for murder, but there is something about Alfred Potter that makes Fabian suspicious. Fabian asks a local copper who knows Potter and his wife to keep a closer eye on them. He's to watch their movements and also drop in for an informal chat with them over the next day or so to see if they might unwittingly reveal something to a friendly face rather than the stern detective from the yard. With his only suspect under surveillance, Fabian continues his inquiries in the village. Over the next few days, he and D.S. Webb personally visit and question every one of the 493 inhabitants of Lower Quinton. Surprisingly, not a single one has anything to add. It seems that suspicion of strangers trumps the need for justice. No one from the area has seen or heard anything. His attempts to establish people's movements on the day of the murder fall flat, and most will reveal only the scantest of details. When occasionally Fabian tries to raise the subject of witchcraft again, he fully expects to be laughed at. But instead, his questions are met with a stony, unnerving silence. Fabian is beginning to worry that they have all the information they're going to get from this closed-off community. How on earth is he going to break the deadlock and solve this most frustrating of cases? 
With little other information forthcoming, Fabian returns his attention to Potter. He's spoken to a number of people employed by the farmer. All say he is a decent man to work for and has no debts that they know of. They also confirm Potter's alibi. He had helped with the castration of two calves in the morning before going to the pub. At noon, he returned home via the fields where he saw Charles working on the hedges. His wife confirms that he got home around 12.30, read the paper for a few moments, before leaving again to help one of his workers with a heifer in a ditch. When they finished, they saw on the church clock that it was 1pm. Potter was home again by 1.05. It almost adds up. But Fabian's well-honed instincts make him suspicious of Potter. It may only be by small margins, but the timings of his movements keep changing ever so slightly. Additionally, statements from friends and family now offer up a few small discrepancies with Potter's own account, like when he arrived or left certain places, or how he had behaved that day. While none of these minor inconsistencies amount to much on their own, it leaves him with a bad taste. Fabian has to wonder if perhaps they might be shielding a killer. On the 20th of February, the local police officer watching Potter pops inside for a cup of tea and a chat with a farmer and his wife. The officer lets slip that they are testing the tools found at the murder scene for fingerprints. He notices that Potter immediately becomes restless. A moment later, the farmer suddenly blurts out that he touched both the pitchfork and the blade while he was watching the body, waiting for the police to arrive. Speaking quickly, he claims that he only handled them because Edith's neighbour, Harry Beasley, told him to check that Charles was actually dead. Potter's wife seems very annoyed at this sudden revelation from her husband. She states angrily that the police are bound to suspect him even more than they already do if his fingerprints are on the murder weapons. The fact that she thinks the police might suspect him at all raises questions for the local copper delivering the news. Potter, having calmed down, now gently dismisses his wife's fears. He repeats that he only touched the handle of the blade while checking for signs of life. Besides, he says, clearing his throat, the murder is clearly the work of a fascist from the camp. At first, Detective Superintendent Fabian had understood the villagers' suspicion that the murder was the work of a foreigner, given the war and the fact that no local had any obvious reason to kill Charles Walton. He was even inclined to follow their thinking. But now that Potter has mentioned touching the weapons, he smells a rat. When Fabian checks this version of the story with Harry Beasley, he learns that it's the first Charles's former neighbour has heard of it too. Beasley says it was patently obvious that Charles was dead when they found him. He would never have told Potter to check for signs of life. He also confirms that Potter didn't touch anything in his presence. Fabian feels that Potter has gone to great lengths to explain away fingerprints that haven't even been found yet. His hackles are up. He is sure the farmer is lying. But is it to cover up murder? Having carefully examined Potter's bank accounts, 
The only thing Fabian can really find in terms of any wrongdoing was that Potter regularly drew down more money than he needed to pay Charles's wages and had been pocketing the difference. But how would that lead to murder? Fabian can find no hint that the sullen and slightly morose farmer is violent in any way either. He's certainly as strong as an ox, but he has no history of a temper. As it turns out, the farmer needn't have worried. Despite Professor Webster's best efforts, no usable fingerprints are found on the tools, and Fabian's suspicion of Alfred Potter must remain just that, a suspicion. And this is the way it continues for detectives Fabian and Webb. Every time they feel they're getting closer, the evidence fizzles to nothing. Professor Webster reports that the trousers they took from Potter for examination did have two stains on them, which Webster is convinced are blood. But he tells them that the trousers were cleaned too thoroughly before they were handed in for him to get any more information from the stains. Potter remains an elusive suspect. Despite feeling like he's closing in on his man, Fabian can't dismiss the lack of motive. What's more, he keeps coming back to the sadistic nature of the killing. With little else to go on, he has to wonder, could witchcraft or paganism really lie behind this otherwise senseless killing? Ignoring his misgivings, he has to pursue the idea further. Aside from the obvious similarity to the murder of Ann Turner all those years ago, Fabian now finds another possible link to paganism. Researching any significance of the date of Charles's murder, he discovers that, according to local legend, on the old Julian calendar from the Middle Ages, the 14th of February was thought to be the best day for a blood sacrifice. Apparently, as the earth begins to recover from the winter freeze, a ritual sacrifice was once seen as the way to ensure a good harvest would follow. It's certainly a long shot, but Fabian redoubles his effort to get any of the villagers to confirm this ritual link. But again, the locals shy away from any questions about such unholy things. The only lead that comes from the inquiry is when Fabian overhears one person saying that Charles is dead and buried, so there is nothing to worry about now. Does that single comment confirm anything? Do some locals believe Charles Walton to have been a witch, and with him now stuck, the village is free of any curse he may have put on them? Was the date of his death really chosen because of its link to pagan sacrifice? No one will either confirm or deny any of it. He's also run out of new avenues to investigate. He's checked Charles's financial situation, nothing untoward there. No one had any reason to wish him any harm. Of course, the idea that a harmless old man could be killed as a witch seems ridiculous. He chides himself for pursuing such a fanciful line of questioning. Scotland Yard has a reputation to uphold. Exhausted and hoping for some final inspiration, Fabian walks back up the hill to the scene of the murder. On his way, a large black dog runs past him, making him jump. Shortly afterwards, he comes across a young boy out for a walk. 
Fabian asks him if he's out looking for his dog. The boy says he has no dog. But when Fabian explains what he saw, the boy's face becomes deathly pale. He stands silent, as if in shock, before turning to run down the hill. Fabian is mystified. What on earth could have scared the boy so badly? Standing at the scene of the murder now, desperate for some kind of revelation, Fabian feels completely despondent. This is, in his own words, a bleak and lonely place, and the case has turned out to be just as desolate. Fabian must grudgingly admit defeat. There's nothing more for him to do here. Later that evening, Fabian happens to mention to a local officer about the small boy's strange behavior when he learns something that sets his mind racing. He's told that local legend has it that a large black dog is seen as a portent of death, and it so happens these villagers have reported seeing a mysterious black dog on regular occasions over the past few months. Little Quinton is clearly a hotbed of superstition, but even still, could locals suddenly be so spooked as to engage in pagan blood sacrifices? Overhearing their conversation, another officer chips in. In the strangest of twists, apparently a large black dog has just been found dead, hanging by its neck from a tree near the place where Charles was killed just that evening. A chill flies down Fabian's spine. Was that the dog he'd seen? What does it mean? Does it relate to Charles Walton's murder? He's lost for an explanation. With no further evidence coming forward and nothing but silence from the residents of Lower Quinton, detectives Fabian and Webb reluctantly return to London. Fabian still racks his brain, trying to focus on the facts. His instincts tell him that Potter must surely have killed Charles, but he can't even find enough proof to fully convince himself of that fact let alone a judge and jury. After their return, while looking back over the local police reports, they learned that one of the constables saw Potter return to the murder scene on Hill Ground in the early hours of the morning on the 15th of February, not long after the body had been removed. The copper had warned him to stay away from the scene. The new revelation takes Fabian back to Little Quinton for one final interview with his prime suspect. Yet again, the interview ends in frustration. Potter simply claims he was interested to revisit the site on his own property where one of his workers had been killed. Who wouldn't be intrigued? Finally, Fabian learns that two of the workers who had confirmed the timings of Potter's alibi had since resigned from his employment and left Little Quinton that they both realized what kind of man they were working for, or had they compromised themselves somehow by confirming his alibi. Without forwarding addresses, Fabian's questions will have to go unanswered again. In the end, the case of Charles Walton would continue to haunt Fabian as one of his most frustrating investigations. The killer was never arrested, 
and no further evidence ever came to light. In later years, in his own autobiography, Fabian of the Yard seemed to favour the idea of the connection to witchcraft more and more. Still haunted by his experiences in rural Warwickshire, he writes, I advise anybody who is tempted at any time to venture into black magic, witchcraft, shamanism, call it what you will, to remember Charles Walton and to think of his death, which was clearly the ghastly climax of a pagan rite. Whether Potter was the man who'd conducted that rite was never proved. The case remains the oldest unsolved murder on the records of Warwickshire Constabulary. It is also one of the very, very few unsolved cases on the great Robert Fabian's long list of famous cases at Scotland Yard. Next week on Scotland Yard Confidential. On a spring evening in 2006, on a quiet street in Wembley, North London, Metropolitan Police Special Constable Nisha Patel-Nazri is found bleeding to death in her driveway. Days later, her bereaved husband appears on national television to make an appeal for information and urging her killer to come forward. After the slaying of one of their own, Scotland Yard wastes no time in getting to work. Detective Chief Inspector Nick Scola is on the case. But what initially appears to be a home invasion gone wrong turns out to be the tip of the iceberg. He's soon drawn into a dark web of deceit, revealing a twisted tale of vanity, greed, and lust. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Sean Coleman. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.